0: Hello, Father Senior. Uh, Hello. Hi, this is Krista Tippett.
1: Very nice to meet you,
0: (laughs) so to speak. Yes. So to speak, right? (laughs) Um, You know, you you came. uh, Michael Gilligan was one of the people who highly recommended that we interview you for this. Yes. Um, I'm hearing a little bit of an echo, which may be the volume on your headphones. I wonder if.
1: So I it and we're down hearing a little, bit. a little bit back to us Okay. As
0: well. All right. We'll try to turn it down here.
1: Should I turn down mine? Is mm-hmm. that good? Mm-hmm. Is that better?
0: Um, let me see. Let me, yes, I think the echo's gone. And how about you? Um, I, I heard you talking about cooking. Oh, well, I'm hearing a little bit of an echo, but maybe when I back off from the mic, it's okay. Yeah, I'm, it's gone. Um, why don't you tell me something like uh, what you had for lunch today?
1: Let's see. I had a a ham. (laughs) We ask all these silly ham and cheese sandwich. (laughs) I was at a meeting. It was a uh, you know a committee meeting, so that's Mm -hmm. what they serve: ham and cheese sandwich Um, on French bread.
0: Are you hearing an echo now? Do you do you sound all right to yourself?
1: Uh, I sound all right. Yeah. No, I don't hear any echo.
0: Okay. So I want to tell you that uh, I I'm a bit daunted by the by this uh, by the scope of. What we have to discuss, the idea is that we want to create a program for the time around uh, Pope Benedict's visit to the United States okay. um, but i don't I don't want to just I don't want this to be a conversation about the Pope but about what's happening in the Catholic Church, uh, the state of the Catholic Church in the United States um, and I'm interested in your perspective being someone who is inside an important institution of the Catholic Church and I, i'm you know I'm, I'm also assuming that some of what you see as challenging and important is not necessarily uh, what the headlines would suggest <laughs> um, but but I, you know and so I want to dig at that a bit and and but I also want to ask you some of the questions that I think um non-Catholic observers would want to, things that they would under, want to understand that may seem quite simple about sure what's up with this and why is this important and why is it difficult. So I kind of want to walk this line of having a sophisticated conversation in terms of what you see and then ask you some some simpler questions about sure. how things look on the outside, if that makes sense.
1: That makes sense. And there's of too
0: much to talk about, obviously. So we will just take this where it leads us. Um, I have a bunch of notes here, and I think there's some obvious uh, conversation points. Mitch, are we all right to?
1: Start? We are. I just want to confirm that Sarah has left the room.
0: Um. Oh,
1: I can leave if you want. Oh, you're in the same room together. Okay, um, that's fine as long as. Uh, <laughs> As long as you're quiet. <laughs> this is how we do things here, so okay. i used to I, oh, That's fine. I think sitting, he, I don't mind quietly. Sarah being here. So
0: <laughs> he did, we just didn't want the door to open and close. All right. Well, let's no. yeah, let's get going. And I'd like to start just by hearing a little bit about your history. Did you grow up Catholic?
1: Uh, yes, okay. I was born and raised a Catholic.
0: And you are a priest of the Passionist religious congregation. Is that right? That's right. Tell me, right. tell me about that about the, this order.
1: Uh, Well, the Passionists, they're an international order, about uh, 4,000 members, uh, founded in Italy in the beginning of the 18th century, and we live in community, and our work is mainly preaching work. We have a lot of retreat houses, for example, in this country, Uh, or they would go into parishes uh, and have, like, special retreats or renewals uh, for parishes. Uh, I'm in education, but that's not our normal uh, type of work that we do as a community. I'm there just because this is the place where we send our own candidates.
0: Oh, okay. Now, you entered seminary, is this right, in 1960? That's you were, right. Or, I, I okay. went
1: first to what's called an evisciate, which is like a boot camp, I guess you would say, <laughs> okay. for the religious orders for a year. And uh, after that, uh, started my seminary preparation.
0: And what strikes me, just when I look at, a basic, at, the, at the basic dates, is that you you entered the order in 1960. You were ordained in 1967. And right in the middle of that period in which you were being formed and educated as a priest, Vatican II happened. <laughs> so you That's entered, right. you entered <laughs> in the pre-Vatican II world and you exited into the post-Vatican II world.
1: That's right, and we used to kid that the bridges were all falling right behind us as right. we crossed over to the other side. So, But it was a great period to go through, and I'm grateful that I had something of an experience of the pre-Vatican II church as well as uh, what happened at Vatican II in the aftermath. It gives a good perspective.
0: Hmm. And then it's, um, the Catholic Theological Union, it sounds like, was founded in the spirit of Vatican II in 1968. Is that right? That's
1: right. It was directly, in fact, one of the great architects of the Second Vatican Council, uh, Cardinal Sunens, who was a cardinal in of Brussels, Belgium, and was very influential at the council. And he was invited by the dean of the Divinity School at the University of Chicago, Jerry Brower, to give a talk. And he said his topic was seminary education in the wake of the Vatican Council and he said it should be urban-based rather than out in the country in a contemplative setting. It should be in the context of a great university to be challenged for the quality of its own educational process, and it should be ecumenical in spirit. And he appealed after that. Jerry Brower was very impressed with this. He was a Lutheran scholar, a great man who died only a couple years ago, and he invited some Catholic educators to say there was no Catholic educational presence in High Park in the University of Chicago community mm. and that led that was 1964 and three years later the CTU was formed.
0: And um, it sounds like CTU is a, has a focus on theological education of people entering religious orders. is that right?
1: That's uh, our core mission. We have about 500 students, graduate students. Mm-hmm. And about 130 are seminarians from the 25 religious communities that make up CTU. But here is a sign of the changes. Uh, uh, now the rest of our student body are mainly laymen and women mm. who are coming to uh, get theological education for direct church service or related types of careers or for their own inspiration and education in their faith so it's quite a mix we have
0: how long has that been happening how long has that trend been developing
1: i would say it picked up speed maybe in the early 80s and has been a steady growth uh, ever since the number of ordination candidates as you know in the catholic community has is flat at best Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the areas of growth have been among the laymen and women
0: Hmm. So um, as I was preparing to speak with you, I actually looked back over the transcript of a program we did after John Paul II died, of looking at his legacy. And one thing that really struck me was how the framing of that conversation, the issues that seemed so important at that moment— may may still be important, but they're not the ones that, that anyone would raise right now if they were framing a conversation about mm. the state of the Catholic Church. You know, I was talking about—we were talking about how church teachings um, had clashed with changes in the United States and Europe concerning the family, the role of women, and medical technologies in that period of, of his papacy. And, of course, that's still true. But, sure. um, you know, in the forefront of people's thinking about the Catholic Church's engagement was— the consistent ethic of life, um, issues of genetics, abortion, capital punishment, and also especially John Paul II's analysis of um, the cultures of death of Western society. that That's just not the conversation at least that um, non-Catholic journalistic observers are hearing anymore. And now I want to ask you, um, from your vantage point— If I ask you just uh, to talk about the challenges that are most in the forefront of your mind, the issues that seem most pressing and important as you're navigating the present and moving with the church into the future, you know what what arises for you?
1: Well, that's a (laughs) it's a a big question question. (laughs) (laughs) and covers the ground. But uh, well, first of all, I think that one of the questions, it is an internal question still, uh, is that of of Catholic identity, Mm -hmm. uh, especially with young adults. Uh, There's been so many studies recently, uh, sort of across the board studies of uh, religious denominations and religious allegiance within those. And one of the things that stands out is that the Catholic community, when you interview young adults, say— 18 to 30, roughly, uh, that there's even less engagement on the part of young Catholic adults in their church than there are in, on the part of other denominations. And uh, that, you know, you could take that and, and wring your hands about it, but we're seeing it where we are uh, in a school of theology. We have uh, young men and women coming for whom a lot of the debates of progressive versus conservative uh, all sound like distant static to them, and they're much more interested in trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian in this world, what it means to be a Catholic Christian. Uh, They're interested in some of the spiritual practices, if you like, the spirituality that goes along with this tradition and how they might appropriate it, so uh, one, one issue, one challenge that you'll hear a lot of conversation uh, uh, among the Catholics who are concerned about the vitality of the church is, is that issue, uh, how to be hospitable to young adults who have been raised in a very different way, uh, come with very different experiences, and how, uh, how do we help them experience uh, Catholicism whereas previous generations myself uh, you know would have been raised in something of a catholic culture if you like mm-hmm. i mean there were a lot of social supports for for the things we thought and did and, whereas the younger uh, adults now uh, have not come through that experience they've been pretty much assimilated into i guess a general us experience so oh, so that's one question okay. and and another question related to it
0: well, let me ask you about that one. Sorry, and then to, yeah, and then, yeah and then we can move um, because you've okay. written, you've written about this subject of Catholic identity, and you you made an observation that that this is that is more complicated perhaps to discern and define Catholic identity in the United States even than in Europe, which is in fact the culture from which Pope Benedict emerged and to which he is in large part reacting. I mean, what what are the distinctive challenges of Catholic identity for um, citizens of the United States?
1: Well, I think there's a number of of, – I'll take one example. I think that intrinsic to the Catholic uh, ethos uh, in its traditional understanding is a strong emphasis on community uh, and community as community of worship, uh, community responsibility, uh, the coming together and the structures that sort of – create an environment for a community. Whereas I think a lot of young adults have absorbed another set of values, also valid, and that is the importance of the individual and individual choice and selection and sort of constructing your own uh, spirituality rather than simply receiving one Mm -hmm. that is a kind of heritage for you. So uh, there's, uh, you know, if you see a lot of these surveys on moral issues uh, that might be the teaching of uh, the Catholic Church on, you know, sexual issues or other kinds of values that uh, I think young adult Catholics want to make up their own minds on this Mm -hmm. and consider themselves fully Catholic— but may take a position uh, at variance uh, with the Catholic uh, official position, let's say. Uh, I think also a lot of uh, young adults were, were not really instructed as thoroughly uh, in the wake of the council. I think there was a lot of experimentation, a lot of it very life-giving and very necessary. In
0: the wake of the Second Vatican Council.
1: That's right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things, you know, the older styles of pedagogy, of catechetics and religious instruction sort of were up for grabs in many instances. Uh, And parents of this generation now were confused themselves about what what was the stance we should take. Uh, And uh, so I think there was a whole generation that have not had the kind of uh, more coherent grounding in – uh, their tradition and have not had access to some of the formative practices. Catholicism is not you know, a, a body of knowledge mm. as much as it is an experience, I think, uh, experience of worship, of, of some of the uh, acts of piety and liturgical forms and customs and so on. And, and so a person to really be imbued with this has to be sort of immersed in it, I think. Mm. And and that's what I think many young people were did not have that opportunity, and that's what they're seeking now. A lot of them are trying to seek some way of expressing their religiosity.
0: But it, it is, um, you know, in contrast to other Protestant forms of Christianity, which are, which you, you could also say are about experience. Mm, yeah, sure. Catholic experience. In, in, there, there is also. Doctrine and authority, which is being communicated by liturgical right. experience, right, and by the experience of the community. Sure. And, you know, people have spoken to me over the years about a co- contrast or even a clash between um, the culture of the Vatican, the, the kind of official culture of Roman Catholicism, and American culture in general, and, and also American Catholic culture, which, which brings a more democratic sensibility even to faith. And I, I kind of hear that in in what you're describing about how people want to reach their own conclusions about some of these issues which for the Catholic Church still are are a matter of doctrine and and need the sanction of authority.
1: right. No, I think you're expressing it well it's it, it's a it's a subtle situation, mm-hmm. I think. you know the when you have a billion catholics or so there's a lot of variety and and it's you know despite its appearances it's not controlled from top down lockstep you know it's a, there's always been different currents and eddies in the way people understand being catholic and a lot of it influenced by a particular culture but i think you're right in saying that uh In the United States, there's, you know, people like to take initiative. Uh, There's a lot of volunteer type of spirit. Um, People want to choose on their own. So when you have a a church that is strongly hierarchical, uh, when in the past a lot of decisions about uh, liturgy or about uh, mores or the way a parish would be organized was done through the bishop, through the pastor— and people, more or less, went along with that. Now you have a very educated uh, Catholic community. In some mm-hmm. ways, the Catholic education system has been a resounding success, and that's the problem. You know, in some ways, it's made it difficult. You have, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. you have intelligent, educated people who want to have a say in the governance of their community and want to, you know, they feel they understand some of these things and are not just going to— Take somebody's word for it. You know, uh, Donald
0: Cousins once said to me that the he, he thought that the Second Vatican Council liberated the imagination of Catholics, and that you still have Catholics committed to the institutional Church, but but they're thinking Catholics in a way that Catholics in previous previous generations perhaps weren't.
1: I, I think there's a lot to that. Mm. You know, it's. Uh, and and I think that many of these movements, uh, you know, you could go take a much longer view, and this is probably a little bit self-serving to the church, but, you know, things like uh, personalism, feminism, you know, science, and so on. Th- these, in a way, are sort of the child of the church's own uh, educational system. I don't mean just the Catholic Church; I mean Christianity mm. and its and its own view of the human person and. Uh, you know, and sort of glorifying the human person. So, although the church way, has these, often
0: struggled against those movements in there, that's right. Early Some have stages. said these
1: are, these are like the adolescent children mm. <laughs> of of the parent that is Western Christianity, mm. and uh, I think these things come to a rather acute uh, tension here in the United States, which is a very Westernized, although still a very religious community compared to Europe. And uh, the, as we were saying before, that the, the Vatican is representing uh, sort of this strong uh, authority trying to hold together this uh, worldwide community. And so at times there are clashes. Uh, I, I think you know the the biggest challenge is, is not the tension between the Vatican and the U.S. Church. I think the, the real challenge is how to be a thoroughly committed Catholic Christian in our own culture. You know, it's, it's not so much uh, U.S. versus Vatican, but it's sort of the Catholic commitment as part of a pluralistic society, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I, that's the same thing that a lot of Christian denominations and now the Muslim community, for example, is also facing. Uh, how to be faithful to your tradition, but also be part of this uh, this body politic. Uh, I mean, the whole question of voting and so on, and the, the candidates and their stances on issues that are very neuralgic for the Catholic community. All of this comes to the fore when you look at the problem this way.
0: But I think that the 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 question of how to be Catholic in a pluralistic society, how to be Catholic in a modern society. I mean, you, you that does then um, that does does then put pressure on very specific issues of doctrine and authority and teaching. So, for example, I know that, gosh, I just got I just drowned in studies when I started looking at this. There's so many statistics <laughs> about what Catholics right. believe and what they think is important. But I, I think there, you know, there are some there are some generalizations I think you can make that. Um, uh, that there is that american catholics let me just look at my notes that american catholics um are you know overall favor contraception. I don't know if we want to talk about contraception today, but that overall they sure. favor opening the priesthood to married men and to right. a slightly smaller degree to women. And this also, in this kind of pragmatic American culture, looks like a logical step the Church might take to resolve the crisis of dwindling numbers of, of men entering ordination. So I want to just ask you... Where is that discussion inside the Catholic Church to which you're privy and 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 why is that so difficult how would you explain that to someone who's looking on with great perplexity. Uh, you speaking
1: of the ordination. Yeah, question, well, cel-
0: celibacy—the the whole issue of opening, right. opening the the possibility of ordination beyond. Uh, yeah, well, let's just talk about celibacy first of all. What, um, right. Because my understanding is, I know there's also the question that is raised in American culture because many Ameri- many churches here are ordaining women, but um, my understanding is those are two very different kinds of discussions doctrinally within the Catholic Church. So let's start with the issue of celibacy. Um,
1: Right. Well, I think that is, uh, you know, the, the stakes are much higher uh, with the ordination question than the celibacy question. The celibacy question is a discipline that, in a certain way, is is in the control of the church. I mean, the church could decide tomorrow that celibacy is not a requirement for priesthood, and there's no doctrinal issue at stake there is you know tradition and there is seen a, a kind of uh, spiritual value to this that uh, is the reason why it's uh, it, it continues to be required and it may set up would set up surely all kinds of sociological and demographic or economic uh, adjustments but it, it is not uh, a doctrine it's not something in the, you know the teaching of Christ that every minister of the gospel has to be celibate. And in fact, in the Catholic community, there are married priests. Uh, Ukrainian Catholics, Mm -hmm. for example, in this country have a a married clergy. Uh, So that, you know, but I I think the the resistance to change for it is part of, uh, on the one hand, a belief on the part of of church authority and on, on the part of probably the majority of of priests and religious, that this is a viable way of life, that it has advantages pastorally and spiritually, without in any way denigrating, you know, the married state or sexuality or anything like that. But it it certainly is viewed as an impediment to for a lot of young men and women mm-hmm. who would otherwise consider uh, priesthood. So, in a, you know, would this be a a smart move to, uh, you know, address the shortage of of priests. <clears throat> excuse me, or religious. Uh, many people would say so. One of the things I find uh, is that I do a lot of fundraising, and of course you appeal to. Here I'm here in Chicago. There's a wonderful, generous Catholic community here, and a lot of people, very successful Catholic community. And when I meet with them, as I have over the years, uh, what I find is that, you know, financially and politically, they may be on the more conservative side. But ecclesiastically, if I can use that term, they're very progressive. I mean they would Mm -hmm. find no problem with uh, a married priesthood or women being ordained. I mean they would fall into those statistics that you have. And I think that's part of sort of the can-do Practical, the American uh, white spirit, and, right. and you know, I think no one's ever accused the Vatican of having sort of the practical can-do spirit. It's much more, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's dealing with a worldwide community, and it's very conscious of tradition, and it's conscious of, you know, that changes in a radical way, uh, you know, can have unexpected consequences, and they view things from sort of centuries' viewpoint, and so on. Mm. Uh, but so that that is an issue, and it, it you know I think it's an issue that's not going to go away. As the, you know, people have put sometimes put it: is it going to be a celibate priesthood, or is it going to be no Eucharist within our tradition? Mm-hmm. And, and that puts it very baldly. And I think the church authority is.
0: You mean as numbers of priests dwindle so much that people right. would not that's have right. access to the Eucharist?
1: Yeah, and that is already happening. I mean, where you have. Uh, priestless parishes, even in this country, the further west you go into smaller dioceses, there's many churches that do not have a priest uh, resident, and there's sort of circuit riders going around. And it means, as it has meant for many years in in Latin America and other places, that uh, you maybe have access to the Eucharist, to the Mass, uh, once a month or or more, more less frequently, and uh, you have a communion service, but within the Catholic tradition, that's not the same. <laughs> it's not no. the same sacramental experience. So that's, that's a pragmatic question. The, the, the question of ordination, if, if I move to that. Right. I, you mean is including
0: is, ordination of women, is it?
1: Ordination of women. Yes. That's right. Now, the, the, the stakes are higher there in this sense that uh, Pope John Paul II— uh, and certainly, I'm sure the Pope Benedict would would be in the same way and, and the vast majority of of the bishops believe that they're dealing here with uh, a, a command that goes back to Christ's own teaching. you know And this is debated in the Catholic community, and a lot of people are not persuaded by it, but it is the the motivation for, the, you know, hanging on to this uh, this teaching that only a male can be ordained a priest. And uh, that is a tremendous cause of consternation and suffering on the part of many Catholic women, not only just Catholic women, mm-hmm. but Catholic men and women. But it's it's a, a level of debate that is on a different level than the celibacy because it has been given this doctrinal foundation I mean now you mm-hmm. know the church uh, over the centuries uh, you know works through some of these issues but I really don't see uh, in my lifetime certainly uh, this uh, this changing you know't see uh, the ordination of women that's right but could you imagine
0: that you could could you imagine a married priesthood in your lifetime
1: oh a married priesthood I think again that is that is something is I, in fact it's already happening you one of the anomalies that that is going on in this country. You have a, a number, not a huge flood, but you have a number of, of people coming from the Anglican community mm-hmm. who are already married, have a family, and they enter the church and they want to seek ordination and they're ordained and they're active. So there are married clergy, as mm-hmm. I say, you know, the Ukrainian clergy. So I think that probably the way it might go would be that, you know, there's deacons, in the United States, permanent deacons—we call them—these mm-hmm. are uh, men who are
0: who can be married. ordained
1: to be deacon to help in the parishes and so on. They're not planning on going up to priesthood; it's not a stage for them. But I think uh, some of them, uh, most of whom are married, uh, you know, ordaining them as priests would probably be, a, you know, sort of. A, Uh, a a kind of married creep into it, you know, Mm -hmm. or a a step sliding to the side. You're talking
0: about creeping and sliding, and I think (laughs) from the outside it looks so rigid and Byzantine sometimes, the way something like this is discussed or not discussed, and how it might possibly become a decision. It's quite mysterious. I, I,
1: I know. It must be very difficult. I mean, it's always difficult, I think from outside a tradition to to try to understand how it works, and and Catholicism does have you know some of its labyrinthine ways, and it is a community that very much values tradition. Uh, now, tradition can be seen as you know uh, a rigid. Uh, encirclement that doesn't allow you to be free or to deal with things, or you can view tradition as a kind of strength that a core set of values and practices that, that helps you navigate. And, uh, you know, at its best, Catholic tradition is the latter. Uh, but sometimes uh, it, this uh, a sense of tradition, people can sort of absolutize aspects of tradition that are not really absolutes that are capable of being changed. And uh, that's uh, some of the debate that goes on in Catholicism is, you know, is this a core value or is this something that we need to adapt or even sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, for mm-hmm. the sake of our mission as a Christian community in the world? And, and that's, a, you know, that's a debate worth having and it's often not an easy debate and that, I think, on the people who are thoughtful Catholics, not just clergy, but, uh, you know, the Catholic community as a whole. That That's the kind of ferment that's going on when you were saying earlier, Krista, about what, what would be some of the issues inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would be uh, some of the things that are of great tension in the Catholic community now.
0: You know, we— um we're thinking about doing a program about the ordination of women because there's there has been a lot of activity. You know, there are several groups. I'm sure you've heard of them who are who are staging ordinations of women right. and a few married men. Um, now, they they don't conform. They they are often have often been set in motion by bishops who are not bishops in good standing, and so you know simply don't. Um, for the most part, I believe, I believe that's fair to say for the most part that they don't um, that they're not within the tradition of apostolic succession and c- couldn't wouldn't be recognized officially anyway. Right. However, that doesn't change the fact that this is happening and that there are women and married men who are um, out there now, ministering calling themselves a, reverend, a father right. or a right. mother um and i i wonder um it, it's easy to say that that hasn't been sanctioned and I, th- I think that the policy of the vatican recently has simply been to just absolutely ignore it not even comment on it not not even um, sanction peop- uh, censure people um and yet it's happening there will be a new york Times article about it there was last summer about this spate of Unofficial ordinations.
1: Yes, right.
0: I want to, you know, and Pope Benedict has spoken about the dictatorship of relativism as a as a great danger of the present. But I wonder if, you know, how do you tell the line between relativism or c- catering to the culture, and, in fact, revelation happening? Uh, mm. You've written also that one thing that becomes clear from a thoughtful reading of the Bible as well as a study of church history is that it is the world, not the church, that usually sets the theological and pastoral agenda.
1: You're dangerous reading things.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just curious about, is that also a discussion that takes place internally between you and your colleagues and other clergy and professors and theologians? How do you see... Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, it's, you know, for example, at the school where I am, Catholic Theological Union, probably 40 percent of our student body are women. And our faculty has, you know, probably a third are women. And on our board of trustees, we have women and so on. So it, it's, you know, they're right there. And women are
0: nine in ten parish life coordinators in the American yeah, church are women. <laughs> that's, that's right. right. I mean,
1: th- this, is the, this is the anomaly of the catholic experience in this country i mean you have women who are head of uh, you know healthcare <laughs> industries that are you know three or four of the largest uh, in the united states and you have women who have been running school systems and and so on i mean that are running institutions and given enormous responsibility mm-hmm. but there's not the concomitant recognition when you turn to the the question of ordination Uh, You you know, it is an ongoing discussion. I think that uh, a woman who, like uh, I will take some of our faculty members, you know, to here they are in a church institution that's preparing candidates for ordination. Uh, I don't doubt that uh, some, not all, but some of our women faculty uh, may themselves have felt called to, Mm -hmm. to the priesthood. Uh, so they they decide, uh, and in I think often a heroic way, uh, to remain engaged, you know, to sort of uh, move beyond the anger and continue to uh, carry out their mission of education and of service uh, without losing their convictions. And and another interesting dimension of this of many of. The women uh, who I have uh, come to know and cherish in my work as a priest in my life, uh, some of them don't want to be ordained to the priesthood as we have it. You know, mm-hmm. in, in other words, uh, they're not looking to you know don a Roman collar and step into the same uh, modalities of uh, the way priesthood is exercised. Uh, I think they're looking for something. You know, an overall powerful transformation. Right, they
0: would like to be part of a transformation of the, the office of the whole institution Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the
1: church and the priesthood. And uh, you know, I I think all of us long for that. I think anybody worth their salt is not content with the way things are. And that, uh, and I don't mean this in a sort of an anti-authority view. It's just that, you know, you're aware of all the humanists. We've gone through this whole abuse uh, question. Right. Uh, And you know, a lot of uh, priests, uh, their way of celebrating the Eucharist or uh, their way of dealing with people leaves a lot to be desired. You know, and and any bishop or anybody that's aware of the situation would would readily confess that. So you know, there's a need for transformation, and a lot of uh, women are looking for that and and working towards that. But this is a difficult issue for us. Uh, There's no question about it. Uh, You know, you get to a point in in your life and you say, well, am I – do I tune out (laughs) Mm. (laughs) or do I stay tuned in and, you know, work with uh, all my heart and soul at what I'm doing, uh, not giving up the dream? You know, and I I think that that's –
0: What is the dream? How would you describe the dream?
1: Well – You know, I think anybody that's involved in the life of the church and particularly in, say, an official way in the church's ministry, I mean, you are aware of the humanness of the church. By that, I mean its frailty, uh, its inconsistencies, uh, that it lets people down at times, that it's not as holy, frankly, as— it's called to be i mean you know this is where this is us mm-hmm. and so you long for the uh, a church that is more transparently a, a sacrament of grace in the world and that is uh, a place where people feel welcomed and where they can be experience compassion and forgiveness and a church that stands for for justice mm-hmm. which is another big issue uh you know that I think is a struggle in the the American Catholic Church, but so I mean you're you're longing for the kingdom to come, I guess, in biblical terms, and uh, part of it it is is you know uh, I remember reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, Life Together, and he said that mm-hmm. one of the enemies of community are the wish dreamers who are more in love with their understanding of. The community they want to have than they are with the community God actually gives them and, and that struck me as wisdom right, you know, right. that uh, you have to deal with where you are and who you are but you can't die in place you know you have to keep trying to be uh, to, to make things more more integrity and more transparency
0: let's let's talk about the um, the sexual abuse scandal and specifically what i'd I'd love to hear you reflect on is uh, how that has made its mark what has it how has it changed affected the atmosphere um, I- I- that you're aware of in the church in general and at the Catholic Theological Union in particular and you know is is healing taking place and what form is that taking
1: yeah that's well it, it's really
0: I mean we're still it's still very close really and it's still isn't very it? close yeah. it's
1: still very raw mm-hmm. it's uh, and I think that what the depth of the wounds might be are, are not fully known. Uh, some of the things that people feared would be an outcome have not taken place, like uh, strangely financial support. You know, is the collections dip for a while, and they're sort of back to where they were. But that's not uh, the full indicator. I'm just wondering on in the minds and hearts of, of young adults— who are coming forward, uh, what this has meant for them, this kind of, uh, you know, moral failure on the part of the leadership of the church, the bishops, the priests. I can tell you it makes, there's a tremendous difference in the training that people are undergoing and in the scrutiny of candidates. Uh, You know, all of the religious communities in the United States, of which my own is part, have we have to go through. We have to be certified uh, through uh, a course of training. That's One of them is called Presidium and the other is called Virtus. All of our students who work, uh, who are preparing for work in the Archdiocese of Chicago, for example, also have to go a very rigorous uh, training. Uh, it's an awareness training. Uh, and, you know, I just the other day... Uh, and received sort of an update, and it listed all of the uh, kind of uh, ways of behavior in dealing with young children or young adults that uh, a minister of the gospel should avoid. And most of them are common sense, you know, that you—I think anybody with a brain in their head would not have done this anyway. But there's, there's other kinds of spontaneous uh, acts of affection, you know, that in the past you would have done, I mean, a pat on the shoulder or, mm-hmm. you know, tousling somebody's hair or something. That it, now you you have to be extremely careful. And, and that can and also be so. kind of
0: uh, rightly so, and yet it, it it's a somewhat chilling effect of all of this. It isn't is,
1: it, it is. It's, there's a certain sadness. You know, Even we would just have opened up a new building and new academic center, and, you know, part of the design work is to make sure that uh, the doors to offices have. <laughs> Windows in mm-hmm. them, and so on, and it's, it's not just the Catholic community. This is affecting everybody, and these are little symptoms of of a question. That, you know, there's an underlying distrust of the integrity of the person, or it can be a protection uh, to the priest or minister from a highly litigious society. Uh, and in the midst of this, you think of the victims. You know that mm-hmm. this whole how many thousands of lives broken by this. So there's a lot of sadness. Uh, There's also been, uh, this would be true, I think, more of diocesan priests with their bishops. There's a kind of, uh, in many instances, a kind of chilling effect on the relationship of the bishop to the priests. And the reason, you know, the wondering, well, if somebody accuses me, are you going to throw me under the bus, you know? Mm -hmm to protect the reputation of of the church it's sort of a reverse from before when
0: when the uh, accusations were ignored that's right mm-hmm. to protect
1: the the reputation of the priests or of the of the diocese mm-hmm. so it's had that impact i th- that's maybe cataloging some of the woes but i think also you know i've this is, may sound strange, but I, I've talked to a number of our candidates, both seminarians and laymen and women coming. And our recruiter has said this to me several times that, you know, there's a lot of really healthy young men and women who are coming because of the scandal you know, in the sense that they, they want to make a difference. Mm. You know. mm. they, they want to be part of turning This around and giving another face uh, to the church that is one of integrity and compassion and healthy uh, outreach to to young people. So, I mean, there's these moments of grace that come, uh, you know, with you. Sometimes you really can't change your heart unless there's a little bit of a breakdown. Mm. And uh, I I think we've had a massive breakdown. And uh, hopefully on a, a technical basis, the Catholic community is putting into place, and I don't mean this comparatively, but it's putting into place very rigorous standards for uh, accountability, for screening of candidates, for practices, you know, that are on behalf of protecting uh, children and young people. It's not perfect, but it's, wow, it's, what an investment is it going on here. I see this on the ground. And that, you know, that may help. There's a lot of other professions that have uh, this challenge also uh, and probably don't have the kind of organizing capacity that the Catholic priesthood has to, to sort of impose mm. these requirements. So.
0: I know that that some people felt that that at the root of that crisis were precisely some of these issues of authority and that that needed to be examined um, maybe, as part of that picture that you drew a moment ago of mm, the question of how the church can be transformed um, should be transformed, might be transformed. Do, do you is that part of the deliberation now or the ongoing work that's happening, looking at what what went wrong with? The well, whole I think there
1: there is a lot of discussion about that in in the sense if if I understand right, the the notion of of transparency, of mm-hmm. accountability, mm-hmm. Of, of openness, of not working in the dark in secret. Mm-hmm. and secret. And I think this is particularly true of the reaction of uh, religious leaders, bishops, and major superiors of communities that uh, in many instances – uh, one would be too many, but in any instance that, you know, where there was a credible accusation, then they move somebody, and nobody knows about it. Uh, you know, you never heard about it. I, you know, I, I can say growing up, I'm 68 years old, I, I never heard of any of this. I mean, I don't know whether I'm the most naive person in the world, but I, I never saw it. I mean, I think all of this was shuffled behind was hidden, the yes. closed doors, and uh, you know, that I think people are saying, wait a minute, That that's a kind of a toxic way of doing business as a Christian community. And there should be accountability. There should be laymen and women on these boards. It should not just be, you know, clergy review boards and so on. Hmm. Uh, th- there's also discussion uh, in, about, uh, you know, did celibacy have a role in this? Uh, and I, I think most people are saying, well, not – Celibacy, as such, but the fact that a celibate clergy can be a haven for someone who's a predator. You know? mm-hmm. uh, so those discussions are are certainly going on, and the bishops are still—they've commissioned a number of major studies, that uh, very expensive and important studies, to try to get to the root causes of this, and that still has not yet been completed.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about the current Pope, Pope Benedict, the former right. Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, oh, yes. You know, the, uh, John Allen of the National Catholic Reporters, an excellent journalist, did a yes. did a piece after Benedict's first year, and um, and I, I need to I need to couch this story by saying that he he started he 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 said that he, he mentioned that you know uh, Cardinal Ratzinger was known as the Vatican's enforcer. Uh, his, God's Rottweiler, the Panzer <sighs> Cardinal, the German Shepherd, um, an arch-conservative, a hardliner. Um, his conclusion in the course of the article was that that the most striking thing about Benedict's first year was how relatively little of that character had been seen. But he told a story that I think did capture um, the, uh, an image that a lot of people had, including uh, Catholics had, of this Man who became pope. Um, it was of a an editorial cartoon in a communist newspaper in Italy. Uh, it was a play on uh, a, a story about John the Twenty Third, a pope who the Italians loved, right. a treasured memory um, that the pope once uh, was an opening of the Second Vatican Council. The pope was not scheduled to address the crowd um but he said something to the crowd that was kind of burned onto the italian memory he's, he's smiling down at them he said when you go home you'll find your children give them a kiss and tell them that this kiss comes from the pope and hmm. that this summed up the legendary love of the man and the, then after pope benedict the 16th was consecrated the same the newspaper ran a cartoon that showed this Pope at the same window saying, "Tonight, when you go home, I want you to give your children a spanking, and tell them that this spanking <laughs> comes from the Pope." <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know how honest you can be with me about this, but well,
1: <laughs> I'll be happy to be honest <laughs> with <right>. you. <laughs> uh, you. You know, I uh, this is. Uh, not uh, name dropping or something, but I, I actually came to know the Pope in an unexpected. I'm on a. Oh, you're on the commission. Pontifical
0: Biblical Commission with him, right? Mm-hmm. And
1: he was the the chair of this, and we met uh, every year. We meet uh, for seven or eight days in a plenary session, and then sometimes, uh, you know, less extensive meetings. He was at virtually every session. There's 20 of us uh, in this room. He was at the coffee breaks. He was. With us at mass in the morning, and he's with us at meals and so on. So he really had a chance. This is over five years, you know, uh, before John, the, uh, John Pope John Paul II died. And uh, when I went there, I had I, I didn't expect him to be counseling people to spank their children, but I did <laughs> have a, uh, an image of him as fairly severe. I mean, he's in a role that he was. I guess you could say the enforcer. His Role his service right. to the pope and the church was to you know, monitor the orthodoxy of Catholic teaching. And the pictures I saw of him, he looks uh, sort of severe and so yes. on. And uh, when I met him, I was—and and many people have this experience who have, who have met him and been with him personally. I, I was totally taken by surprise. I mean, he's, he's a very unassuming man. There's he's a I would say a reserved, uh, somewhat shy man. He's not the bullient personality of John the Twenty Third or Pope John Paul II for sure. He's an academician, but when you when the first time I met him was at you know like personally was at the coffee break of our first session. I went up to introduce myself, and this I, I won't forget this impression. It, it was as if he was the nervous one, you know, meeting. <laughs> A celebrity and, and I'm nothing you know he doesn't but, but his demeanor is that way and he's an extremely kind person and his way of interacting with you in conversation he's a listener and I, I, I don't want to romanticize this and I'm not you know trying to create a Pope Benedict fan club mm-hmm. but his personal uh, the feel of him personally the persona is of a very uh, comfortable, uh, winsome person. Hmm. And the groups that have met with him, uh, including interreligious groups, have, have been taken aback by this. And, you know, I, I think that he was in a role for oh, what, almost 20 years uh, as head of this office, Congregation of the Doctrine and the Faith, in which, you know, his official role was to, as we were saying, to be a kind of monitor— now he's in a pastoral role. And, oh you know, for the first time in many years, he was Archbishop of of Munich for only a brief time. Before that, he was an academic. And then he came right to Rome and served almost the entire pontificate of, of John Paul II. And now he's in a role where, you know, he's meeting people and he's, uh, you know, he's he's got to be pastor. And he can't—he's not— you know, representing a doctrinal perspective, simply. He's he's worried about the life of people, and he meets hundreds and thousands of people on a daily basis. Uh, and, you know, he, when we, we always meet with the Pope as part of this commission for a good portion of a morning while we're there. And he received us when he was Pope for the first time, you know, after we had come hmm. to know him and be with him. And, uh, it was very touching you know he he remembered every one of our names and you could see it was moving for him these are familiar people coming to him and he hmm. has academic interests he enjoys these kind of discussions we had so so i would say you know he's not the great extrovert they say when he eats he likes us to have his household which, by the way, are a group of lay Italian women of oh, really? that he has What, he there. likes to
0: eat with them, share his meals with he them? He likes to eat
1: with them, and mm-hmm. one of them told me, she said, you know, it's like he's our grandfather. He, mm-hmm. These are women who are, are not the domestic staff, but they're like, you can think of the White House staff, you know, right. who are organizing and arranging correspondence and business. They're very professional-looking. When I first met the group of them, I was struck. I said, well, this is an insight into the man, and he— mm-hmm. He sits with them and he'll say, now, Maria, how was your morning? And Ernestine, how did things go? You know, it's, mm-hmm. sort, of, it's sort of quaint in a way, you mm-hmm. know. But it's, it's his character, uh, his character. He's, he's a man who, you know, is a brilliant mind, a brilliant linguist, uh, probably the most brilliant theologian we've had in that position. Uh, and he's sort of a shy, affable you know, I would say loving person, uh, you know, and people can. And so when that's thrown into the mix, I think a lot of people expected him to come in and, you know, remove heads. Right. And he hasn't. And you read his uh, his encyclicals, you know, mm-hmm. the first one was on About love. Deus Caritas. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the next one's on hope. And they're full of warmth and unction, you know, as well as... Uh, theology in spades mm-hmm. you know so anyway i think he's a different i think a lot of people don't uh, realize uh what his true instincts are you know uh, he probably would like to say something like john the 23rd but it's not in his <laughs> you know he's too reserved to say it that way you know maybe go home and read a theology book or something would be his
0: well now there there have been some Uh, Crackdowns. I don't know. I guess the question is there were crackdowns during the reign or the the papacy of John Paul II, who was very beloved as a person, but in fact was working in concert with Cardinal Ratzinger and... um, there were there was some repression of uh, yes. or or what would you call it not repression
1: uh, uh, sanctions sanctions of, of yeah, theologians silencing of people yes. and so on yes um, right
0: there are there are liberal and progressive parishes in recent years which have which are, which are getting communicated to them that they that they that they can't continue to welcome divorced and remarried and gay and lesbian people for example and there are some theologians there was a liberation theologian in uh sobrino, sobrino who's yes. been sanctioned and a, and a Vietnamese born American theologian in Washington writing on pluralism is that is is there a new level of that under under uh, Pope Benedict
1: um, well it, it's it's interesting uh, just a couple of observations if I may one, one is the the sanctions on like sobrino and Peter fawn who is actually yes. it's been turned over to the American bishops they were not silenced they were there were it's like a notification you know so it's pointing out uh, things that the uh, office of the congregation this the office that uh, cardinal ratzinger had been head of the congregation or doctrine of the faith points out its its disagreement with these and it's but he was not silenced and and in many instances, the driving force for these kinds of responses is is not originating with the Vatican. It's originating with the local scene. That was certainly true with Jan Sobrino. But that's sort of church politics, right. you know.
0: And those were uh, mm-hmm. well, bishops it, it, who it, were appointed by the, by the previous pope. I'm that's thinking. right.
1: And, you know, I think John Paul II, very important, it seems to me, for understanding him. He came out of the Polish church— which was over against the communist world, there was uh, absolute necessity of cohesion, you know, of pulling together, uh, no discordant voices, uh, even though. Uh, you know, over against the communist world, still absorbing a view of the West, that it's decadent and, mm-hmm. you know, without spiritual value. And and I think John Paul II uh, did marvelous things and was a beloved figure and was a great Christian humanist and all of that. But he also viewed his responsibility to sort of rein in, you know, mm-hmm. the church and to create cohesion and to quiet, discordant voices as a witness of the church, you know, over against the the failures of the world. And, and I think that's what uh, Cardinal Ratzinger was asked to, you know, to contribute to. Uh, I think Cardinal Ra- or the Pope Benedict has a very different, he's coming out of a very different experience. He's coming out of Western European, he's coming out of the German experience, as you had said earlier. I think his question is, uh, how do you deal with the uh, a secular world, a pluralistic world. How do you maintain Christian values? How do you dialogue with that? Um, so he is a much more, uh, you know, it's it's not so much internal discipline as it is internal intellectual rigor, and fidelity, you know, to our religious roots. I think, are the concerns of, of Pope Benedict from a programmatic point of view.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, I am I know that many Catholic observers are, are very impressed, as, as you seem to be, with his intellect. And, and I'm quite impressed as I start reading his uh, writings uh, with, his, with his emphasis on reason— And uh, I want to read you—these are actually some lines from that speech in Regensburg for which he got into so much trouble. Right. That was also—I don't think I read the entire speech at the time. I just read it as I was preparing to speak with you, and the—you know, what was interesting is he— it was a very poor choice of an anecdote, but, yes, but the anecdote definitely. for which he got into trouble was really just a launching pad for a completely other discussion. It wasn't the That's focus right. of what he was saying. So, exactly. But here are some lines from where he did end up in that speech, which had, which had nothing to do with Islam. Um, he said, "...while we rejoice in the new possibilities open to humanity, we also see the dangers arising from these possibilities." And we must ask ourselves how we can overcome this. We will succeed in doing so only if reason and faith come together in a new way. Here's another echo of that. The courage to engage the whole breadth of reason and not the denial of its grandeur. This is the program with which a theology grounded in biblical faith enters into the debates of our time. Now, what what is what does he mean with those words and with that idea?
1: Well, I, I think I would say you have put your finger on what is really central to his thinking and has been, you know, prior to his his becoming pope. I'm not a expert commentator on, you know, Joseph Ratzinger's theology, but what I know of it and, and reading with interest what he has had to say as pope, that this is his concern. I think he is affirming uh, he's, he's an intellectual, and he enjoys—this has been true all the way— through his professional life, he enjoys debate and discussion with people who are not Christians or agnostics, you know, whatever it might be. He, he enjoys intellectual discourse. And that, I think, is part of what he's saying there, that reason, the ability of the human mind and spirit to think, to think through, to analyze the world, the, the science that goes with that, That is a gift of God. You know, that's part of the human creation. And that there is fundamentally no uh, incompatibility between that discovery of the world through human reason, disciplined human reason, and what we know through the biblical revelation, through the the church's own intuitions, its best intuitions. But one has to make room for the other. You know, Mm. if if reason becomes a kind of ideology of empiricism, that there's no opening to the possibility of the transcendent, then this is his thesis. Then then reason begins to go astray. You know, it begins to absolutize. And you have like the End of the French Revolution, or you have some ideology, some political ideology, uh, moving in—Marxism or socialism, and Nazism, not socialism. But I mean, and this is his view. So the same—it's true. If religion is, turns in on itself and is not able to move out of a religious language and con- cannot engage, you know, the, the philosophy, metaphysics. Uh, the human reflection driven by reason, then religion has become sectarian and insipid. Hmm. So his, uh, or it, it turns, as this was his concern, I think, behind the Regensburg speech, that religion can turn to violence. It can create an image that is is not tempered by human reason. So he's calling for, and this is really very much at the heart of Catholic intellectual tradition for a long time. Uh, You know, Catholicism has never tried to put like its political theology or its moral reasoning simply in religious terms. Mm -hmm. It wants to be able to appeal to people of good faith.
0: It's also probably worth noting, just because there's kind of a famous clash between faith and reason, science and religion in our time, but that that is almost exclusively driven by Protestant voices, that that's that that's not so much an issue in Catholic intellectual tradition.
1: I right. And, and I would think, you know, for example, evolution mm-hmm. that is such a debate. That I mean, that, that is not really a Catholic issue. Mm-hmm. You know, you have some Catholics that are calling for intelligent design, but for most they're saying, no, let the science... Take us to where it goes. You know? right. uh, Thomas Aquinas' thing, all truth is from the Holy Spirit, you know, matter no matter where it comes from. You know? So I think that this for for Benedict, it's he's seeing a Western culture that in his experience at times absolutizes reason and feels that religion is, you know, insipid or even worse, that it's a, a kind of not worthy of a rational th- person, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so he sees it going astray. And, and he sees secularism as the kind of ideology that emerges from that kind of absolutizing of reason, that there's no room for mystery. There's no room for the possibility of, of the transcendent and uh, he feels that that's the that's the issue underneath a lot of the of western struggles political and uh, uh, scientific struggles uh, so the, you know that's a very different problematic than what John Paul II was dealing with he was certainly aware of this issue too but that's That's not what he grew up on. Mm -hmm. But it is what Cardinal Ratzinger grew up on.
0: Uh, How do you explain what looks then like a contradiction um, between this virtue um, that Pope Benedict places on reason and on on intellectually reasonable faith as well and then his quite famous uh, tussles that he's had with... With intellectual religious thinkers like Hans Kung, I mean, how does that work?
1: Well, maybe we're not always consistent or something. I mean, that may be part of it, too. Mm -hmm. But I I think it's on the side of uh, what is the soundest expression of Catholic Christian teaching. Uh, and that he would feel – again, you know, there would have to be some specific issue we talk about. But I think his, his concerns would be that uh, in some instances a theologian would be uh, diluting or expressing in a way that is not helpful uh, the understanding of the Christian doctrine. So it's like a discipline on the religious tradition side. It doesn't take away from uh, – it's not saying, well, you, you don't have to be a thinking person to be a, a good theologian. You have to be a thinking person. But your expression, your bottom line is not in – it's not a good bottom line, can, can I see you be saying the, in, okay. in these instances.
0: So, you, so it's, it's juggling a few different balls. But...
1: That's right. I mean it's trying to hold this all together is – you know, it really is difficult. Mm -hmm. I mean, it Mm -hmm. is difficult for someone to try to be as faithful to a religious tradition that has all kinds of things in it, and to be a person of their own time and culture, you know, and open to it, and uh, not uh, just condemning it, or not seeing it as dangerous all the time. Uh, You know, I think it's interesting, just was it yesterday, you know, the the sacred penitentiary, as it's called, which is sort of an interesting combination.
0: Wait, wait, what are we talking about here?
1: The, this is this list of sins. Did you? Oh,
0: yes, the seven uh, deadly sins.
1: Well, they, they, they've they added, I mean, it's not the, I was talking, in fact, with a reporter yesterday from the Sun-Times, and he wanted to know, well, you know, is this a list of sins that Catholics sort of carry around with them? You mm-hmm. know, and is this, is, is this list expanding, or is it going to, anything dropping off the list? And I said, well, it's, You know, most Catholics wouldn't know that there is any kind of list. But what was interesting was this Vatican official saying, you know, there's been too much focus on sexual mores. And here we have the environment Hmm. and we have questions of genetic manipulation and cloning and and so on. I mean, the issues that technology uh, and our own... Modern progress have created for us that are moral issues, mm-hmm. but there's not as much addressing of them, or people don't see them as a moral issue. Uh, and so he was saying the focus should move there. And, and many people speculate that's a kind of preparation that the Pope, who's coming, really not on a pastoral visit, but he's coming at the invitation of the United Nations. And I suspect, if given his recent statements, he's going to talk pretty much about ecology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, trying to focus and that on being sort
0: of, a person of, and a leader of his times. That's right. Mm-hmm. And,
1: and, you know, what are we facing as a human family uh, in our world? I mean, the violence and so on is there, but also, you know, what are we leaving as our heritage and so on? That, that's the way he's been addressing this. So, uh, again, it's, I think it's trying to be alert— to the kind of challenges that our own progress brings to us without being rejecting it, you know, as the quote you had given. I mean, there is mm-hmm. the beauty and the power of what has been achieved through human reason and science, but there's also flaws and ambiguities that we have to address. So.
0: I suppose it, um, we're trying to focus on the American Catholic Church, and there's certainly enough right. to talk about there. But one, you know, one of the big the ways in which the whole big picture has shifted it, it, it was shifting all along. But in terms of our vision, is the North South dynamic of the Church, exactly. and the fact that. Now, 32% of Catholics are in North America and Europe, and 68% are in the rest of the world. Um, The one way I think this dynamic is showing up, uh, this dynamic of just the changing face of the church is showing up in the United States is that Latinos now account for one in three adult Catholics, and I believe that it's even a larger share if you look at younger Catholics. That's right. 45%, nearly half of all Catholic ages, 18 to 29. Just curious, from your vantage point there at the Catholic Theological Union, um, how is this changing the work you do and the outlook that your students have and how you think about the future of the Church?
1: Well, if you gather all our students together, you would see that those statistics you've quoted are certainly true, mm-hmm. uh, that the complexion of our, literally the complexion of our student body in the last 20 years has changed dramatically. And we, we have a lot of international students anyway, about a third of our student body are from about 42 countries. But the, the as far as the U.S. Uh, students, uh, they're very significant and growing numbers of Hispanic students, Latino men and women. And, you know, they, they come with a very—their heritage is, is different. Uh, I, I think that uh, compared to our students who are Anglo and have grown up in German, Irish, whatever— you know, families of that heritage, the the Mexican American, for example, the, they are still rooted in a culture that and their language that is thoroughly Catholic. Hmm. Uh, oh, so this if,
0: issue of the Catholic identity that you spoke that's about That's right. Again, the Catholic but, identity whereas, is. Whereas, uh-huh. it,
1: it's being played out very differently, uh-huh. and uh, the kind of expressions of piety, uh, you know, much stronger Marian piety, for example. Hmm. Uh, much more uh, festivals you know and fiestas, and much less uh, a kind of allegiance or uh, a direction towards the parish community. It's more you know the ethnic community and the neighborhood and so mm. on, uh, very different from when my grandparents came over and would go into an Irish parish or a German parish or something like that. Uh, here, the parish boundaries and parish affinities are, are less important. And yet, uh, you know, there's also a great demand for their own culture, for theology to be expressed uh, in terms of their own experience, to look for a Latino theology. Now, there's also and,
0: this interesting dynamic of this strong charismatic component to Latino Catholic spirituality, some of which comes from the Latin American experience of the last few decades. Is that part of that also? I think it is
1: part of it. Actually, we don't see as much of that, I would say, whether it's a self-selection or something. But you certainly do see it in uh, the parishes. You see it in the the Mexican-American community. There's much more of, I would say, an emotive expression of of uh, religious uh, feelings and religious values, and you and don't mean that in any denigrating sense. It's 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 a more earthy, uh, maybe more holistic uh, expression. But but also the point you mentioned of the Americas. You know, this was mm-hmm. uh, John mm-hmm. Paul II's uh, challenge when he came to Puebla, the meeting of the Latin American bishops, and said, you know, we should not be thinking along political divisions when we're talking about the church and that, you know, the Americas, uh, uh, there's an affinity and, uh, you know, the immigration, the same thing you're talking about. Uh, So, uh, you know, we have students that are very involved in immigration issues. Many of the religious communities have students who are undocumented. Mm -hmm. And so these issues that are going on in our current of political discourse uh, are life and death issues hmm. for a lot of our students and our religious communities, hmm. and for the people they serve. So the feel is, uh, you know, it's it's much more urgent and, and passionate, hmm. uh than it may be for our students who who don't even think about this, whose citizenship is never questioned, or are not separated from their families or not thinking about being deported. Uh, so anyway, that, that's it, it's a very different feel. There's a vitality uh, in all of this. I would say any—you ask anybody, again, I'm just thinking of my experience, but it would be true of the church at large. There's a tremendous vitality. And, and as you pointed out, the young people, you know, the church, what is it, close to half under— you know, of young adults, Catholics are going to be Latino very soon.
0: So um, I think we've succeeded in not having the predictable discussion because I realize we haven't spoken about the Latin rite yet, and that's the thing that's that's had
1: all the headlines <laughs> <Right>. lately. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So, It's um, probably its rightful place in the overall picture. Really? I think so, yeah. Okay. I mean, really, I think this is— a, as I see it, I'm probably being overly optimistic, but, but I feel it's a gesture, you know, to—it uh, it was intended as a gesture to those alienated on the right to, you know, say, look, that experience you had of the mass, the ritual, uh, is not— invalid you know you can use it if you want uh, if you know go through certain if you're a community and you want to do that there's, there's a number of pretty interesting restrictions on it mm-hmm. but I don't sense any groundswell One of the bishops here in Chicago told me that you know Chicago must has you know a couple million Catholics how many are active is another question but there's a lot. And he said on a given Sunday they have an opportunity now for Latin Mass. And the total October count, as they say when they count the number of people for the official things, was 1,300 attending these. Hmm. That's a pretty small number. Now, it may get bigger with all of this discussion, but I don't think that the Latin Mass or going back to the Latin liturgy is, is going to be a mass movement in Catholicism, I, I really don't think so.
0: So, um, I have a couple of questions here. They go together, but I want to kind of roll them out. Um, see, we we you could see you could see the Pope Benedict's r- r- restoration of the Latin Rite Mass, and then another. Um, Controversial move he's made in 2007 was to restate the thesis of Dominus Iesus, um, which was a, yes. an, a, um, a statement that about s- other kinds of Christians, um, reaffirming um, some language that I think many people felt or hoped the church had moved beyond or would move beyond it, separated churches and communities, and this is the language, though we believe they suffer from defects. Um, And then it goes on to say, are deprived neither of significance nor importance in the mystery of salvation, but this language of the defects of other traditions. Now, you at uh, Catholic Theological Union, on your website, I see that you have Catholic, uh, Protestant, and Jewish uh, teachers. The question I want to ask you is, um, is there a different kind of dialogue and reaction that takes place inside the church in an institution like yours than the kind of politicized talking head dialogue that is sparked in the media with these kinds of um, understandably controversial moves on the part of Pope Benedict?
1: Well, the way I try to express this myself is, you know, what's happened over the last 40 years or so since the Council is that really profound friendships have been forged— with people of other denominations. I mean, we do have some Jewish faculty member and Protestants faculty members, but we're also, even more importantly, part of a, a network of other theology schools here in Hyde Park, and we have open cross-registration. So in any given class, there there are students from various denominations, and our students go to classes there and so on. And, and the, the faculty and administrators that... Uh, we've come to know. I mean, there's a mutual respect. There's a friendship. Uh, There are differences that we clearly recognize, but this doesn't translate into denigrating or despising another Christian. So
0: it it is that experience and web of friendship, that's the context in which you receive and interpret this kind of pronouncement from the Vatican.
1: Right. And, you know, I have a friend of mine who's a journalist here in Chicago, and, and she said, you know, the, the Vatican really needs a PR person. <laughs> and it, and I think that's true. I was trying to uh, explain on a panel on uh, here on local television when that statement came out, not Dominus Iesus, but the follow-up one is that you had referred to. And the defectus, you know, the Latin word the, the defectus. Other traditions
0: this. have defects, yes.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, it's— uh, In Latin, because this thing starts out saying that the Catholic Church has the full components, you know, the Church of Christ, the sacraments and all this. And other communions are are defective. And what that means is, you know, they don't have all the components. But a defect, I think, has— a more, even more pejorative. Connotation so the word in English, in English
0: has a different ring than it don't, does Don't in you line? think? I mean, yes, I think yes. to me,
1: when you say you have a defect, there's yes. something wrong with yeah. you. Uh, whereas this is talking it's formally. More and, incomplete and saying, well, the, is more. Those. Incomplete mm-hmm. would be, you know, probably a much better word, mm-hmm. because at the same time, you know, as in that statement, as you also alluded to, that uh, these are means of salvation for people. Uh, I, there was an editorial in the Chicago Sun-Times when this came out, uh, like a, an op-ed piece, and, and the, uh, uh, the conclusion of the writer was that, you know, the Vatican is saying all non-Catholics are going to hell. That was the title, you know. Right. And I said, well, it, it doesn't say that at all anywhere in it. But I mean, I also don't absolve uh, when these statements are put out and there's not uh, not attention to the impact. I think that's a problem. It's a problem for those of us in the trenches, let's say, or in ecumenical settings. But the discussions I've had with you know, my counterparts and so on. I, I don't see any scar tissue mm-hmm. from this kind of comment. They understand and, you know, uh, we, we talk and we have an understanding. We realize there are different ecclesiologies and uh, each of us, you know, are in our own tradition and setting, but we look across at the other not as if we're perfect and they're defective, as Cardinal Casper said, well, you know, the Protestant denominations probably look at us and see defects, too. You know, so <laughs> it all depends not, on your may, vantage point may not point declare here. it to the world, though. That's right. We don't have the uh, the Vatican. They don't have the Vatican trumpet to uh, bring uh, these out.
0: Um, uh, I'm, I'm struggling with how much more there is we could talk about. um I'm sorry, I ju- and I just lost my train of thought, which I don't have time to do. Um, you know, there's a new Pew research poll that yes. um, one of the one of the findings translates into the line that that has been reported that something like ten percent of Americans are former catholics or <laughs> lapsed catholics. Yes, now, right. the, the overall numbers of the Catholic Church in the United States look good um, because of the infusion of Hispanic immigrants, but but there is this there is a I think a significant portion of the population and and, and perhaps this is uh, one of the downsides of the struggles that you spoke about at the beginning of of Catholic identity in this culture. And you and I have been having this conversation, and and you have been speaking with great warmth and and intellectual integrity as well as spiritual integrity about how you and others uh, are in this church uh, and how you—you know, things that come along that that might seem um, repressive or difficult on the outside that you— you receive them in the context of of a great deal that is meaningful and that works and you're working towards the future but but it's a real option in this culture for people who have bad experiences in their parishes or who have been damaged by the sexual abuse scandal or you know or or, or, or who see the the disjunction that that we've gone through between kind of the discernment of our culture on sexual uh, and gender equity and and the um, forms in the Catholic Church, and and simply turn their backs on it. Um, I just, how do you, how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, that's a, a very striking statistic. You refer to this ten percent of of people that were born Catholic and now are have left the church or for whatever reasons, and, and you you so well stated the the various reasons there can be. I mean, I feel. Uh, discouraged by it, I suppose, and, and saddened by it that the church could not be a spiritual home uh, for that 10 percent of the U- U.S. population. And, and I'm sure there's cases where people were nominally Catholic and, you know, didn't even know they drifted away and so on. But, uh, but there are people who, uh, who are frustrated or have had a bad experience uh, or cannot uh, swallow, uh, you know, some of the church's stands on things. Uh, you know, I remember hearing uh, one of our graduates uh, say something that stayed with me, and they were speaking about a community. You know, you have a community of faith, and his point was that you— Not everybody can believe everything with the same intensity, and and not everybody at a given point can hope with deep hope, and not everybody can love with the same sense of integrity. I mean, you know, it it sort of shifts around, but the body can do it. The whole group can do it. So I've always thought of the church and its boundaries as as sort of uh, very permeable, Mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I think it's very hard, in fact, for someone to leave the church. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like the church keeps. I think it's harder for people to to
0: leave the Catholic Church than it is to leave other denominations.
1: I guess it is, Mm -hmm. and and, you know, and I'm glad of that. And I don't mean that people should, like, fear to leave it because of some spiritual sanction, but that there should be something in their DNA, their spiritual DNA. That they can still belong. People a lot use the phrase when I meet people. They say, "Well, I was raised Catholic," you know, mm-hmm. and I assume that means they're not practicing now. But but I I sort of like it that people say they were raised Catholic. You know, it's part of their it's part of their experience. I hope it wasn't a negative experience. It may not have been a fully positive one. So so from one point of view, you know, maybe it comes with aging. You get a little bit of serene about. Mm-hmm about this and say well it's like a family you know some people are out on the edge and check in occasionally and others are very engaged you know and come to dinner all the time <laughs> so I, I think if you don't use rigorous things and this has been a debate in the catholic church the people debate between the confessing church and what they call the great church the confessing church are the true believers the ones that show up regularly and pay their dues. And then you, you got the others that check in now and then, or, you know, in a census, they'll say they're Catholic, but they haven't been to church in five years. And, you know, do you want to just go with the, the uh, you know, elite? Or do you say all of these are ours? And, and I think that that's an important pastoral stance for Catholicism. Uh, and, and I like the latter. I mean, I like being a little bit uh, more open-armed about it. It, mm-hmm. it. it probably keeps you less tense. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, Now, Pope Benedict has said truth is not determined by the majority vote, and he's looking again at this yeah. relativism of a culture w- right. with which Catholic identity and Catholic beliefs fit uncomfortably and sometimes don't fit at all. Mm. That does cut against the grain of our American mentality that we talked about it before. It does. Really does. Is yeah. that, but is that also something you would um, you would agree with, or would you qualify it in terms of your experience?
1: Well, I, I think I agree with it in, in the sense that, and, and it's not so much you know, Catholicism, say, as, as a unique stance. But I, I think it's really the Christian faith. I mean, it's the gospel. There are certain values there about retaliation, you know, about care for the poor, uh, about, uh, you know, reverence for human life and so on that, that is not the exclusive preserve by any means of the Christian. But it, it is—they are defining values for us. And at times, there are things— and situations in our culture that dilute that or say that's not what should drive your career or something. And, you know, so over time, I think you have to say, what are the values that define me as a human being? And I have to be true to them, even if it pits me against, you know, another circumstance, or I might be, you know, like this whole movement of, this rigorous, aggressive, atheistic movement, which I don't think is going to be a groundswell, you know. But, right. but you know, it's sort of a, a ridiculing that if you would believe this kind of thing that you're an intellectual pygmy or something, you know. Uh, I, I think that that is the kind of challenge that a person has to have a core of belief to, to define themselves. Where do they stand? And I think that's his concern. You know, in his... Again, I don't want to be the Pope's interpreter. I'm just mm. taking what he's read. You know, in this, his latest encyclical on hope, he says at one point, you know, talking about judgment, and he says, you know, when we come to face God at the end of our, our life, he said, there may be some who are completely committed to evil, that, that, that every decision they make is a rejection of love and it's consumed by violence. And then there may be people on the other side Who are totally consumed by love, who everything they do is transparently good. He says, but that's not most of us. Most of us are a strange mixture in the middle, you know. And he went on to say that what is judgment? And he says, judgment is when we come and we encounter the fire of God's love and the fire of hell and the fire of purgatory. They're not fires like a barbecue pit that's the fire of God's love that purifies us as human beings of everything that is not inclined to love. And I, I think that picture, you know, whether a person accepts that or not, it reflects the kind of, uh, on the one hand, the compassion of the gospel and the commitment that we are to bend all of our life to acts of love and reconciliation. We strive to do that. I think every good human being strives to do that. And that at times to carry that out, you have to, you know, you can't walk over people if that's mm-hmm. your or you can't sometimes there's aspects of our career or we may have a position that, that constantly violates that for us. So anyway, I, I don't want to slip into a sermon here, but that I think these that's a very important issue. Of otherwise what what does a life of faith mean if it doesn't define you in you, the very heart of your being.
0: You said to me when we first began to speak that you were grateful that you had some time. That part of your life was in the pre-Vatican II Church, um, right? And then you moved into your priesthood in the in the Vatican II and the post-Vatican II Church. And um, you mentioned also a, a while ago that that. Uh, that the that a pope that the Vatican has to think in terms of centuries, and that really is at odds with uh, with the way our culture thinks, which is it wants every change and resolution to come immediately. Um, so, so g- granted that Vatican II in in a in that Catholic mindset that is dealing with the tradition of two thousand years and thinking in terms of centuries, the Vatican II is still in, the legacy of Vatican II is still in, in, in its infancy. Sure. I mean, how would you describe? Because I think some people are looking at some of the events uh, that we've discussed—the Latin Mass—they they see that as symbolic as a reversal of Vatican of the spirit of Vatican II itself. Um, how do you see how that uh, that important experience of Vatican II is playing itself out now in the life of the Catholic Church in your? experience?
1: Well, I, I think it is, a I think, a core issue. A lot of, uh, you know, our students who are coming in now, our younger students, as one of our faculty said, you know, Vatican II is is something like World War I. They know it happened, they know it was <laughs> important, but they're not sure <laughs> That's why. That's a pretty stark <laughs> you know, analogy. So it's, yeah, it's, it's not the, the event as such, but I think it was the But it was an event for Pope
0: Benedict. I mean, it is was formative for this pope.
1: Oh, definitely, and and for myself. I mean, I'm not in the same league, but Mm -hmm. I mean, that was your point that Mm -hmm. the that and I think it really turned the face of the church to the outside world. You know, the church was in a, a I think a very defensive posture over the decades you know, from through the 19th century, much of it, you know, with the, the Pope and the Vatican and, and the onslaught of modernity and, uh, you know, this is probably a byproduct of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. All of these things, you know, had a certain cumulative effect that made the church take a kind of uh, besieged defensive posture. Whereas Vatican II, uh, in many ways, whether it was, you know, a liturgical language, whether it was adapting to culture, whether it was taking a more positive view of other religions and denominations, it, it sort of accepted modernity and some of its fundamental perspectives, and said we're part of this, we're responsible for it, and and we belong to it, and we need to serve it, and, and that, you know, that that was it, it's a very fundamental stance, and I think it also had an impact of uh, releasing over time the church from being basically a European Hmm. experience and the realization for the first time that the church is universal in the sense that there are cultures, non-Western cultures, the Southern Hemisphere, the things we were talking about earlier that that are as legitimately Christian and have something to say about what the gospel means— uh, whereas before, there was a kind of uniformity of, of Western experience imposed on that. So so that encounter with the world on this fundamental level, instinctive level, I think is what we're still wrestling with. Hmm. Uh, and, and some do want to sort of, you know, well, let's go back, you know, and, and protect ourselves <laughs> from these difficulties and the influx of these toxic values – But, you know, the genie's out of the bottle. And uh, uh, in so many ways, uh, the church has embraced the world. It may not always seem that way to the world, but I think it has. I mean, just look at the commitment to interreligious dialogue in Catholicism. You know, it's profound. Hmm. And it, it will never be altered. I mean, we'll never go back on that, or ecumenism, even though there's these adjustments of language and so right. on. There's no going back. I mean, it, and, and people are the same with, uh, you know, I think the Pope's statements about the rational and his embrace of science, and, uh, you know, that the Church is not going to go back and list the syllabus of errors anymore. Hmm. But, but it comes back to the question we've talked about, a number of your very thoughtful questions about, well, how do you remain faithful in the midst of a pluralistic society. That really is what the Council served up to us.
0: Huh. That question, that challenge.
1: That challenge, that challenge to be a part of the world. And You know, there's that famous introduction to the uh, statement in the Vatican Council of the Church in the modern world, and it starts off and says something to the effect, the hopes and fears, the joys and sorrows of the world are our joys and sorrows and our hopes and fears. You know, anything that is genuinely human is appropriate for the church. It, it's a beautiful statement, an opening statement, <clears throat> excuse me, that many people see as a kind of keynote of the underlying agenda of the Vatican Council. Hmm.
0: And you see that agenda continuing to unfold.
1: Definitely. I think it's unfolding in myriad ways. And, uh, that's why I was glad to, you know, in certain ways bridge the times, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I look back, I, I I did not resent some of the rigorous practices of, you know, fasting and abstinence and, you know, confession and various things that sort of define Catholic customs. I never resented them when I was in them. Mm-hmm. Looking back, I'm glad <laughs> we could put them aside— but it helped me understand. I mean, I understand where the people who are seeking the Tridentine liturgy there was a lot of beauty to it. Right, I love sing. the chant.
0: Yeah, and it, it, there's there's a lot of talk, and we we won't go into that, and don't have time to. And <laughs> I, I am going to speak with uh, someone who's an expert on seminaries and Good. ordination. But well, there you are, Craig. but there is also the phenomenon of younger ordinands being more conservative and going yes. back to the tradition. And you're kind of describing them retracing your steps.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, I, I find that among young Catholics coming to study theology at our place, there are some who are seeking their identity, you know. So they're, they're curious about benediction, about the rosary, about, you know, adoration, the blessed sacrament, you know, various customs and acts. But, but they're, they're not reacting to anything. They just say, I wonder what was that all about mm-hmm. and, and did that help you be a better person? That's different from a rigid authoritarian personality who thinks that by being ordained and, and wearing the right uniform that they are going to have personal religious authority in a parish. You know? mm-hmm. They're not. A lot of them are crashing and burning as they find out people don't won't accept it. Right. You know? <laughs> so that's a different – Expression and, and you have both. Sometimes they look the same hmm. from the outside, but there's a very different worldview inside. And, hmm. you know, I don't mind at all a, a young Catholic sort of trying to find their way through some of these uh, practices as long as they can relate to people. You know, when, when John Paul II issued a, a statements called Pastoras Dabo Vobis on the formation of priesthood, he said, you know, those four dimensions, human, the theological dimension, the spiritual training, and the pastoral training. He said, the most important of all is the human. Hmm. And if the person can't relate to people or they have some kind of a warped understanding of authority or how they relate to people, you can't do anything with that, Hmm. you know. You can fix the theology and the, the the pastoral training and so on, but you have to have that humanness uh, underneath or else uh, it's in vain, and that's what you have to look for.
0: I, I've really stretched you, and we really have to finish, but I do want to ask you one final question. I, I just want to ask, there, there is, a, well, things that are difficult and debated get a lot of play in our culture, and I, I, I do want to ask you— um, what would you like people to be watching in terms of what gives you hope, or even where you you know where you see hopeful change happening um, in the church, kind of moving in the Catholic Church, moving forward?
1: Well, my hope, uh, and maybe it's because of the work I do, is is the the younger generation of Catholics. Hmm.
0: They're getting uh, a bad rap are, too.
1: They're getting a bad rap. You know, I was at a conference where, uh, with a sociologist from a Catholic university who's done a lot of studies, and they're talking about you know of this young adult group, you know maybe 60 percent are sort of drifting away from the church, and and then I asked, I said in absolute terms, what is the 20 percent? What what numbers are those? Mm-hmm. And it's something like 2.8 million young people. Okay. Mm-hmm who are very committed. And, and I'm think you know, sort of the glass half full, mm-hmm. half empty. I mean, 2.8 million is, is more than most denominations in the United States. And here you have this group of people who, despite all of the goofiness that goes on in the church, are very committed, you know. And there's, I'm sure among the rest of the percentages, there's varying degrees as mm-hmm. normal young people think about their life, you know so i i i find we get a lot of that 2.8 million people coming <laughs> and and they're healthy people you know they're thinking about their career about marriage uh but they're also seeking deeply to be spiritually formed they're very idealistic you know some will crash and burn i imagine but this there the goodness is there mm. and uh our faculty would say, this generation of younger students coming are as good as any group of students we have ever had. And uh, I really believe that. So my hope is there. I mean, they're going to refashion things. They're not going to tolerate some things that, that I could easily tolerate. Uh, but I think, you know, this, it's not that the church is dying. It may diminish in size. We may have, you know, add to our 10 percent out there (laughs) in in the American population. But there's a a vigor. I mean, this amazes me, really. I mean, I I think I ultimately have to think this is the work of the Spirit of God that's putting new life into all of this. Hmm. And uh, that's my hope, you know.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much. I. I'm going to be haunted by everything we didn't get to, but I think we had a very <laughs> broad and wide-ranging conversation. Thank you, and thank you for well, giving I me all this time. Well, I thank
1: you for your wonderful questions, really. They just, you really did your homework, I have to say, <laughs> in case you're a professional. So. Uh, well, thank you.
0: We will um, let you know what's happening with this, and uh, we may have some more questions for you, and um, we know where to find you. I'm thinking you've been talking to Rob, I believe.
1: Yes, that's right, Krista. All
0: right. Well, thank you again.
1: Well, thank you. Take care.
0: You too. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.